Take a network break, grab a virtual donut, and strap in as we speed run through this week's tech news. We're going to talk about AWS raising prices on V4 addresses, cover a bunch of financial reports, and talk superconductors. Uh, we're also going to follow up our coverage of the Ultra Ethernet Consortium by dropping in a brief pre-recorded conversation with Jay Metz, chair of the steering committee at the UEC. Uh, we're sponsored today by Backbox. Backbox is a multi-vendor network automation platform that lets you automate every device on the network through a single pane of glass. It supports network and security devices from 180 different vendors. So for example, you could execute an OS upgrade across your Cisco, Checkpoint, and Palo Alto firewalls with a single click. Get an evaluation copy and see for yourself at backbox.com slash packetpushers. And then stay tuned for a Tech Bytes podcast. We get into digital experience monitoring, or DEM. DEM goes beyond traditional SLAs by offering more precise measurements of network and application performance as experienced by end users and can provide detailed measurements to help network engineers identify and respond to problems. We're going to talk with sponsor Fortinet about how they're delivering DEM. Now let's dive into news. Amazon Web Services is raising prices on IPv4 addresses. Starting in February 2024, the cloud giant's going to charge you 0.005 cents per IP per hour for all publicly addressable V4s. <laughs> I quite like this. This is this is there's, there's so much to talk about here, really. Um, before AWS used to give you the IPv4 addresses as a cost of doing business, and they mm. went out and and they've spent quite a bit of money buying IPv4 addresses over the years. Um, they own a whole bunch of slash eights, which they've bought, and uh, they've basically suddenly decided we're going to charge for these. And it's got me sort of scratching my head. In one hand, um, I, you know, why would you start charging for them now? But my gut instinct says, um, I think what AWS has done is said, you know, if growth continues like this over this period of time, there's no way we can buy enough IPv4 addresses to cover it. <laughs> right. And... They're sort of getting ahead of the curve here and saying, you know, if we start charging for these addresses, maybe people will slow down from using them. They won't just can take them. Now, just to give you a scale of how much money they're going to make out of this, because this is this is a thing. I went scooting around. I found a blog post from Andre Tunk. Um, he's a well-known BGP internet service provider type blogger, and he suggests that it's about a hundred million addresses. That was about two years ago. I think that's that's about right. I think that they would probably have that given the number of IP addresses that they've bought and the size of the business that they're running. They're now going to charge it at 0.005 US cents per IP per hour for all public IPv4 addresses, whether attached to a service or not, right? So if you uh -huh. allocate a public IP of four address, you you do get charged um, in some cases, like if you have it, but you don't attach it to an instance or whatever. But, but a lot of the time up until now, IPv4 addresses are free. But if you want to, say, take a slash 28 for yourself, but don't actually allocate to anything, it's now chargeable from the time that it's allocated. So let's just do the math. Roughly 30 days a month at 0.5 cents, that's $3.60 per month. And that becomes $43.80 per year, per IP uh -huh. year, right? So now what you actually have is a cost of, let's say that from 100 million addresses, let's say at any given point in time, 50% of them are allocated, right? Let's assume that some percentage of these addresses are future capacity. Not all addresses are active at a given point in time. Let's say that 50% of the 100 million odd addresses that they've got is actually allocated today. They are now making an extra $2.2 billion a year, just like that. <laughs> At 0. 0.005 cents per, <laughs> per IP, IP per hour. Per hour, 2. yeah. 2.2 billion. That's, and that's just, they haven't launched a new service. They haven't done anything. They're just picking up the money sitting there in the pocket. Yeah, they're literally just taking, 
whatever it is that you do today that you thought you were paying for for free. Now, I think there is, you know, there'll be an overlap here because some of the things, there, there is some charging for IP addresses. Okay, so let's take off, I don't know, a billion. They're still going to make an extra billion dollars by charging you <laughs> half a cent per IP per hour. That's, uh, and they're not that's doing a, anything different, yes. Nothing different. All they've done is write some code to bill you for it and stick it on the invoice. Now that now that is cloud. That to me is off-prem cloud. <laughs> the ability to just nickel and dime your customers to death and there's nothing that you can do about it, right? Um, but well, the point, the, I mean, I guess the thing you can do about it is switch to IPv6. That's the one like, thing you can do about it. If all their services supported IPv6, yes, they still don't. Um, there are some services that don't support IPv6, and so, uh, but that's pretty rare now. I think by and large, most of the services that they operate um, support IPv6 mostly, I think is what I've heard. There's a few services where they just don't support IPv6 at all, and or there are functions inside of the services that aren't IPv6 enabled yet or right. something like mm -hmm. that. But yes, okay, you've, yes, IPv6 is free. And uh, yeah, so that's whatever. So I think it's interesting at a couple of different points of view um, in that, you know, instant billion or between a billion and an extra two billion in, in flat out revenue for effectively zero cost. Um, customers don't really get a choice. You don't get to say yes or no. You don't have an alternate option. You get to like it or, or leave kind of thing. Right. Um, I also think it'll have absolutely zero impact on IPv6. Because if you're in AWS, you really don't care how much you're paying anyway, because it's that expensive now. What's a few, th you know, what's a few more hundred thousand dollars on a year? Fine, suck it up, right? So I think IPv6 not really going to be changed by this. It, it might, you know, there might be some tiny uh, incremental changes. Yeah, yeah, on the margins. Yeah. I guess my take is that if you are someone who has wanted to expand or play with IPv6 or just transition to IPv6 and you've been looking for a justification, you can now walk into your you know, CFO's office with a little spreadsheet and be like, here's what we're going to spend by running IPv4s. Here's what we wouldn't spend by switching to IPv6. Can I do this project? You can now assign a dollar value to it uh, and, and be the hero saving the company some money if, if, if that's of interest to you. Yeah, you know, you say that, Drew, right? But let's say that you're taking 128 IP addresses. Right, public mm -hmm. IPv4s. That's five thousand six hundred dollars a year. That is not even worth your time to walk in to the CIO's <laughs> room. And like, that's if you took a slash twenty, you know, it, you know, two hundred twenty-eight addresses, you know, or a, a slash twenty-five, say, right? And and away mm -hmm, you go. Mm -hmm. Five and a half thousand dollars a year to have them all year. On most people's AWS bills, that's that's just. Not even right, around here. That's not even around here. Yeah. Yes. Good point. You could probably yep. wipe that, wipe your butt in that amount of money on an AWS. <laughs> so, like I said, if you're on AWS, cost doesn't matter. You've already agreed that you'll pay three times what it's worth to do it somewhere else. So whatever. But right. If the savings to your own organization don't mean that much to you, then do you really want to give Jeff Bezos another two point two billion? How about that? Is that a motivating? I don't know. I just want to go home, so I wouldn't care. For an extra five thousand a year in a in a budget on AWS for one hundred and twenty eight, whatever. Yeah. Right. Anyway. <laughs> well, I will note that in the post uh, AWS published about uh, this cost increase, there are also a whole bunch of links uh, for how you can uh, activate IPv six or switch to IPv six, and all of the services that AWS supports with IPv six uh, in that link. Uh, so we have that in the show notes if you want to go check it out. For sure. Yeah. Uh, 
Cisco is buying a startup called CodeBGP. CodeBGP monitors routes around the world and can alert you of routing changes. It also lets you see routes from your own routers to critical assets. Uh, it's going to be folded into the Thousand Eyes business unit, which focuses on internet and WAN performance monitoring. Uh, I want to say this is an aquahire, Drew. They make a big deal in the Cisco official announcement, basically saying, uh, pointing to the fact that this team consists of renowned BGP experts. Uh, they're a team that's out of Greece. Uh, they're particularly able to get deep information into BGP hijacks, route leaks, and other issues. This feels like an aquahire. They wanted these people because they're BGP experts. They've got a platform. I, given that, you know, remember when Thousand Eyes first came out, that's this was their bread and butter, BGP mm -hmm. visualization and alerting. So mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine that they bought this to replace that or to, you know, do something that, that they're not already doing in BGP. So I, I take this as an aquahire. But congratulations to the team at Code BGP. Uh, they've been working hard out of Greece for a long period of time, uh, and I think it's going to be great for them. Uh, the acquisition amount was not disclosed. Uh, according to Crunchbase, Code BGP has raised $1.5 in venture capital, so Cisco probably just picked this up with pocket money. Uh, and it was also a very small company, yeah. so yes, maybe this was an acquihire. Yeah, $5, 10 $20 million, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, we've got a whole bunch of uh, financial results, uh, so we're going to get to them here. We'll, uh, we usually put them at the end of the show, but we're going to do them a little early because there's just so many to get through. So we're going to kick it off with Arista. Uh, for the quarter of 2023, they had revenues of $1.5 billion, up 8% over last year, and net income of almost half a billion dollars. Uh, the rest of the year looks good, according to Arista. The CFO is predicting year-over-year -year growth in excess of 30% when they do release their, their full fiscal results. So Arista continues to surprise everyone. I think they even surprised themselves, really. They weren't really expecting, or they would have said we're expecting more. I think they've been sort of down-talking their results. And the reason for that, of course, is that they're very vulnerable to what happens into what they call cloud titans. So yeah. one company, two companies, what they sell to Meta and Microsoft are the two big ones. Now, I believe they sell product to other of the cloud titans, but that's the main two. If any of those companies suddenly decided they were slowing down purchases, I think Arista's results would be very different. Yep. Uh, Arista's business is highly dependent on the North American market with almost 89%, sorry, 79% of the money coming from North America. Of course, cloud titans again, distorting those numbers. They wanted to talk up their international business, saying that it's growing very, very well, but there's only 21% of their total revenue comes from that. So... I've got mixed feelings about Arista. They continue to do amazing, uh, you know, just outperform, ship so much kit where no one else was able to ship. They were able to get, you know, during the supply chain conundrums, they were able to ship product where no one else could. And now they're continuing to grow, but the analysts are sort of saying, well, how long does this last? And they're already very highly valued. They've now got a market capitalization of $54 billion, which puts them roughly the same size as Fortinet or Palo Alto now. And uh -huh. roughly 23% the size of Cisco. Just think about that. Arista is now one-fifth, but more than one-fifth the size of, of what Cisco is. And I think that's an amazing achievement, all things considered. I agree. I think they are very exposed to uh, just a few, a handful of cloud titans. And I think the gravity of those customers is also affecting sort of their strategic roadmap. When you look at competitors like Juniper, uh, Aruba, Extreme, and so on, we're going to talk about Extreme later. They are highly focused on the enterprise and delivering products for the enterprise. Arista, I think, is at the margins attempting to, but I don't feel the same energy from them that I'm feeling from their competitors in the enterprise space. Uh, not to say that Arista is not in the enterprise, but yeah, the, I think the gravity of their biggest customers really uh, has an effect on where their interests in engineering are. Yeah, yeah. Like, should Arista be interested in AI networking or should they be interested in selling to the enterprise? I think the enterprise would be a bigger 
more profitable market. They've already proved that they can, when they go head to head with Cisco, they do very well. Why aren't they doing that? I think AI networking is going to be a relatively small market and not likely to, you know, it's going to be a few million ports, but it's not going to be anywhere near the volume that you're going to see in the enterprise market going forward. Yeah. So in the press release, they did tout being a founding member of the Ultra Ethernet Consortium. And the Ultra Ethernet Consortium is basically trying to optimize Ethernet networks for AI and HPC workloads. So it's another sign to me that Arista is going hard after this small but potentially lucrative market of companies building network fabrics to support AI workloads. Uh, and again, but again, I think it's that that gravitational pull of Microsoft obviously being very involved in AI and Arista being like, yeah, we, we, we can do everything we can to help you. Uh, yeah, well, Again, not necessarily <laughs> ignoring the enterprise, but not paying well, a lot of I, I attention think, there either. I think the whole AI networking thing is also um, the ASIC makers. Like Broadcom will be saying to them, what are you doing? What are you, we've, we want to be here. We don't want to lose out. And Broadcom needs to exert influence on the market. Uh, so they'll be pushing the companies that they have control over. And Arista is one of those. Arista is exposed to Broadcom in that sense. Uh, Broadcom doesn't want to see AMD with the, some of its acquisitions. You know, Its switching ASICs are a bit weak, but it does have them. And obviously the DPU thing, I think long term you are going to see AI networking. The first thing they're going to do is try and do it in the network and that's going to fail just like every other time we tried to do something inside the network. Frame relay, ATM, QOS, priority flow control, doesn't really matter. RDMA, you know, all that stuff that we do in the network, in the end it always fails and we end up fixing it at the edge. My instinct is that longer term... How long? Three to five years, maybe? We'll see DPUs ultimately be doing the traffic shaping and the controlling, and they'll be doing it without, maybe by talking to the fabric, but more likely just the way we do it today. They'll just be monitoring the traffic, looking for retransmissions and fixing it externally. So it's very painful for Broadcom to hear, I think. And the other, you know, Broadcom ASICs, I was reading up the other day just how big those ASICs are. They're huge. Mm-hmm. They're one of the biggest mm-hmm. pieces of silicon being manufactured today. And they have to be because, you know, 800 gig ports coming in and, you know, all that data, you don't want to break it up into chiplets like they do on CPUs now three and three-dimensionally stack the chiplets and all that sort of stuff. And um, those, those ASICs are reaching the end of their capabilities. I mean, how much longer can you make a bigger and bigger ASIC? We are hitting the limits of what you can fundamentally make and brought, you know, the Broadcom ASICs and for all the switching ASICs, they're very expensive to make and just getting more expensive. If you yeah. keep running them on leading edge. In the old days, the switching Essex used to be running on trailing edge fabricators. So, you know, if Apple was on three nanometers, the Essex used to be on 20, you know, years behind. But now mm-hmm. they're getting getting closer and closer to the leading edge because they need that smaller and smaller size. Yeah. But they're also only selling those Essex to a smaller and smaller market, just the Cloud Titans. So there's something, there's there's a future future crunch coming coming up there, I think. And in general, while I don't necessarily always like to agree with you, I think history bears you out that uh, in the battle between intelligence in the network or at the edge, the edge tends to win out over time. So yeah, eventually. I think <laughs> DPUs are probably a safe bet. Yeah, eventually. Yeah, you do something in the network, it works for a while. It's a, and, and the people who sell the network can't wait to add value this way. But yes. it always seems to, you know, there's really not much. The only time I've seen a success is EVPN. And arguably, that's at the edge of the network in a, if you look at it in a certain type of way. Anyway, let's push on. Pushing on. Uh, Fortinet also posted strong results for Q2. They had revenues of $1.29 billion, up 25% year over year, and net income of $266 million. Yeah, didn't make the market happy. There was reports of the share price falling by up to 18%. I took a look at the share price. It hasn't fallen by 18%. If it fell by 18%, it only fell for a few minutes or something. There was definitely mm-hmm. a sell-off uh, because Fortinet was sort of making... 
different noises uh, about how their future sales were going to be impacted and they weren't too confident that they had more growth. I think in general, all of the cybersecurity stocks have been overbought. They're priced way, way up high. You know, and we've seen a lot of nervousness around cybersecurity stocks in the last two weeks. A number of companies have had really massive downgrades on really small amounts of cautiousness from the financial results. But in this case, I think that analysts have basically decided that they've driven the prices up as high as they can go. So there's nowhere to go but down. doesn't really matter what Fortinet says. We've seen this before. <laughs> we know how that plays. Um what Fortinet was trying to tell analysts, though, is, and I'll quote, in a sign of our strength in the small and mid-sized customer segments, we added a record 65,000 new logos. 6,500. 6,500. Sorry. Okay. Yep. Yeah. 6,500. <laughs> that's 6,500 companies. And their operating margins of 30% exceeded the high end of the guidance range. Da, 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 da. Now, what they actually said there was that the reason they didn't hit their projected revenue targets was an unusually large volume of deals that we expected to close in June instead pushed to future periods. And then they went on to say that from their point of view, CIOs continue to prioritize spending. So they're saying spending remains, but we're also seeing new regulatory requirements from various governments. So for example, those announced by the SEC and the EU Cyber Resilience Acts announced earlier this year. It wasn't clear from the statements that they were making to analysts whether they were saying the new regulations caused the cybersecurity market to grow, and so don't worry, it's going to grow, or whether they're saying, because these regulations were released, everybody stop purchasing because they need to look at the regulations and decide, <laughs> is this purchase right. going to be compliant? I, uh -huh. It's uh, so, six one half dozen the other, because you can look at that as saying, yes, people put a pause on because of these new requirements, but they'll start buying again once they figure out how to you know use our the products in our portfolio to, to meet these requirements and, and check those boxes. Yes, I, I expect to see the cybersecurity companies like Palo and Fortinet suffer some sort of correction because they've been bid up so high in in the last six months to a year, and uh, we'll see how that works out in the in the in the longer term. All right. Uh, Intel also reported Q2 results. They had revenues of 13 billion down 15% compared to last year. On the plus side, the company had a net income of 1.5 billion uh, compared to this quarter last year when it had lost half a billion dollars. So it's now uh, generating revenue once again, generating income once again. Well, I, yeah, that's very difficult to tell. I went through the financial results, read up on a, a number of analyst statements, and I think Intel might have been doing some uh, advanced accounting, shall we say, to show a better result. Having you know made some dramatic changes to the business, cut headcounts drastically. Uh, mm -hmm. They're also mm -hmm. out trying to acquire some companies. They're trying to buy a company called Tower Semiconductor, which will give their fab uh, business unit more scale, and scale is what it's all about. But they're struggling to get uh, the Chinese government to sign off on it against the backdrop of all the geopolitics, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I noticed that the data center and AI group fell 15% year over year to $4 billion. And their network and edge business revenue dropped 38% to $1.4 billion. You might remember that they were doing the Tofino, and now uh -huh. they're not. They were doing DPUs. They've cooled off a lot on that. I don't know if they're still doing the DPUs, but they're no longer making a lot of hype and spending money promoting their position in the DPU market. I suspect Intel feels that it has to be, but it's not the most important thing for them to be doing right now. They need to be focused elsewhere. So... I suspect that you know Intel is a very different company to what it was five years ago. It's a very small company in terms of the scale of technical companies today, and it's definitely got a lot of internal problems. But it, you know, Pat is Pat Gelsinger the right person to turn it around? There's a lot of people questioning that as well. So it's going to be a rough ride for Intel. That's all I think I can say about that.
Yeah, as you did note, revenues across all its business units were down, except for the Intel Foundry Services. Uh, they had revenues of $232 million, but that's up more than 300%. So I guess if you want to highlight the positives, that's one of them. Uh, Intel also noted it's making continued investments in chip manufacturing uh, and allocating billions of dollars for sites in Poland and Germany. Mm. All with government, with someone else's money, taxpayers' money. So the EU is giving them substantial uh, tax subsidies for the German government and so forth. Um, and of course, the U.S. government is doing the same thing for their fabs in the U.S. So, of course, yeah. it must be great to be in that that shot, you know. <laughs> Other people's money is the best kind of money. Free money, yep, free money. All right, Extreme Networks—they are reporting their Q4 and full fiscal year 2023 results. These two look pretty good for the quarter. The company had revenues of 363 million, up 31% year over year, and net income of 25 million for the full year. Extreme brought in 1.3 billion, up 18%, and net income for the year of 78 million. Today in the stock market loves good news category, uh, Extreme has done a, an extraordinary job here, and you had to dig in a little bit hard to talk about why. Uh, in their conversations to the analysts, they were talking up large customer deals. Apparently, they've been managed to pull off um, what I would think of as gambling business. That is, if you chase after a handful of very large accounts and then uh -huh. win them, you're uh -huh. home and hosed. It's fantastic, right? If right. you lose them, you, would you have been better off you know, going for a lot more customers? And I think right. they've won a number of large headline deals with really, really big logos like Kroger, and they've got some cruise lines coming on board. They've obviously been doing a big deal with large sports stadiums around the world and shown that they can do, do Wi-Fi in those markets. Yep. Um, the CEO actually said, um, if uh, uh, the analyst asked him what about the competitive situation, he said, well, our competitors is where we go toe-to-toe, the most competitive is probably Juniper and their enterprise solution today. Juniper and Extreme are about the same size as the enterprise space. We don't see them as much as we see Cisco and HPE. Cisco is about 60% of the market and HPE Aruba, I'll just add the word Aruba, about 15%. Yes. So 75% of the market that we run into is Cisco and HPE and then to a much lesser extent Juniper. So it's interesting that despite Juniper not uh, being in the same number of deals, they are their fiercest competitor. And that, that makes sense to me because Juniper is obviously trying to, uh, Extreme does a lot of business in Wi-Fi. That's where Juniper is trying to get itself back into the enterprise, uh, land with yeah. Wi-Fi and then expand. Yeah. Mm. So I think that's just, it's just interesting context to know that Cisco still, you know, the, the CEO of Extreme is saying that Cisco still owns 60% of that enterprise campus branch yep. wide wireless type market today. And no HP is 15% and then the rest goes to Juniper and Extreme, you know, would be something, you know, around 10%. But Extreme's been winning some of the biggest deals going on. And I think that's given them a, a really a really big boost to their revenues. When you win, you know, really, really outsized deals like that, Cisco wouldn't even notice in the numbers. But at Extreme, you will. I noticed that uh, Extreme Network share price is now around $30. That is uh, up 130% over one year. So if you're wow. an extreme employee in the last year and you're getting bonus, <laughs> getting you know stock benefits, which I still believe is a swindle, but when you're on the winning side, you're on the winning side. So yep. you must be pretty happy about it over at extreme. So you know, good for them. Might also be a sign that um, Cisco's struggling again. You know, we talk a lot about Cisco sort of not really capturing the attention and the minds of its customers. If extreme can sort of win these deals and continue to to post really good numbers as Juniper has done in this enterprise space. It sort of suggests that Cisco is losing the business. I don't see that market as expanding like a huge amount. Uh, it still, to me, feels like a, a zero sum. So that's that's a really good news for Extreme if they're able to take business away from Cisco. 
Just as a quick note, I have to wonder if all of these results, all being so, aside from Intel, positive, has something to do with sort of this, I hate to say post-pandemic, but, uh, you know, after the, you know, uh, supply chain issues and so on, uh, it seems like, and also with Wi-Fi 6 and Wi-Fi 6E coming on board, there is a little bit of uh, uh, tailwinds helping these uh, companies with these deals and, and with their share prices. And I don't know if this kind of thing is, is sustainable or it's just sort of like a little sugar rush, uh, you know, as uh, supply chains unclog. Yeah, there, there's been always questions about supply chain. I haven't mentioned it because every time the analysts ask about supply chain, these companies assure them they show how many back orders exist and so forth. And um, I think Juniper had troubles with its financial results recently because they indicated that their backlog was falling. Mm-hmm. And so they got their their share price take, took a bit of a hammering there. So that issue is being watched by analysts and it's sort of taken into account. And the fact that we're not talking about it sort of indicates that you know, Extreme has got lots of orders. The backlog isn't falling down for them, and they're shipping what they what they need. Yeah, it also seems like there is now some cautious optimism that the U.S. is not going to go into a recession, which may be loosening wallets. Although, uh, given these were you know prior quarter orders, it's hard to say whether that had an impact, and maybe that will also help with uh, subsequent quarters. It's just interesting to see these small companies. You know that Cisco used to just monster the market and just keep them around, <laughs> sort of, to, for for whatever reason. And now the they're actually bouncing back. I do wonder what happened. You know, when do we see signs of Cisco? You know, making attempts to to refresh itself and to refocus on this market, or is it because they are focused somewhere else? I, I, my instinct is to say they're focused somewhere else, and this market to them is is fine. They're they're happy with the way it is, and we'll just. But still, no evidence either way to be a hundred percent certain on that point. Yeah. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Backbox. Backbox is a network automation platform. It supports network and security devices from over 180 vendors. It's got thousands of pre-built automations and a scripting-free way to build new ones. With Backbox, any task that could be performed manually on any device on the network, regardless of vendor, can be automated. It's got intelligent, conditional automations to streamline tasks that once took several steps to perform, for example, verifying available storage space on devices before beginning OS upgrades. It's built from the ground up as a multi-tenant solution. It's got role-based administration and REST API. It's a powerful scalable network automation solution, and with its award-winning customer support, you never run your own. So see why businesses and service providers worldwide trust Backbox to automate critical tasks on over 100,000 networks. You can get a free evaluation copy of the software to see for yourself. Go to backbox.com slash packetpushers. That's backbox.com slash packetpushers. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Ultra Ethernet Consortium, Drew, and yep. we talked about how we expect them to build an InfiniBand replacement for AI. You and I got on a call with Jay Metz, who's the chair of the Ultra Ethernet Steering Committee, to get some more context about why the show exists, and we got him actually to stump up for a short interview. So here's, a, here's some comments about how the Ultra Ethernet Consortium is approaching the market and some of the key factors that they wanted to take for you to hear. So recently, we talked about the Ultra Ethernet Consortium a couple of weeks ago and outlined some of the things that we thought about it. And we've been lucky enough to speak with Jay Metz, who's actually part of the Ultra Ethernet Consortium. I think he's actually one of the founders or something. And he's with us now. What I want to start off with is talk about what are the two major problems that the UEC is attempting to solve? Well, the two major problems that we're trying to solve is that we have an ever-increasing amount of bandwidth and an ever-increasing need for that bandwidth and the reduction of latency according to very large systems. And so when you've got workloads that have needs for low latency, like high-performance computing and high bandwidth like AI, as we start to go into these higher bandwidth loads, you wind up with some very inefficient stacks. So we're trying to improve the stack so that we get more efficient use out of our networks. So what we're saying is Ethernet 
is defective for those use cases. Although we can get Ethernet to go fast, what we actually need is um, multipathing, packet spraying, and we need the fabric to be congestion aware. So let's explain how you do that, or what, what does that mean in terms of the UEC? This is very early. The, found, the consortium has only just gotten together, and these are very general ideas. But so far, you've talked about scaling to a million nodes, multipathing, packet spraying, and being congestion aware. What does that mean to people? Well, what it means is that you're looking to try to figure out the best way to make better good put through your network. Good put is the ratio between the amount of work you actually can do in a network compared to the available bandwidth and latency capabilities. Avoiding so, retransmissions and so forth. Exactly. So, you know, the amount of work you actually get done, you know, depends upon how efficient that network winds up being, like any kind of engine or what have you. So what we're looking to do is say from the physical layer all the way up through the software layer, what are the things that we can do to make this sing? You know, how do we how do we take that wine glass and and run our fingers around it and make sure that it sings the hymn that we want it to all across the stack? And that's what we're looking to do for both AI and HPC. So and is there may- anything particular about AI and HPC workloads that require uh, sort of a, a, a rethinking of Ethernet or an adjustment to Ethernet? Well, one of the things that people have been trying to do with these different workloads is to be able to have a many-to-many relationship between the different endpoints, where in typical networking that solves high-performance problems, you wind up with this kind of one-to-one situation, uh, and you have to have in-order delivery of the packets. You have mm-hmm. to you know, use the, 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 the bandwidth in this kind of um, you know static of effect. What people want to do with AI and with HPC is spray the packets across the entire network, use the entire network, make sure that the entire network behaves as it should, but then that brings additional issues with it, right? So how do you avoid congestion in the network? How do you avoid congestion at the endpoints? It's something called incast. How do you handle you know, the signaling uh, between the different devices and, and those sorts of things? Well, there is no one size fits all. So you have to try to create a dynamicism inside of the network that allows intelligence to be able to accommodate those different types of requirements based upon the profiles mm. you're looking to solve. And you've also got to take into account out-of-order packets. You don't want uh, right. to start spraying packets across multiple – or start pa- frame spraying, really. It's not packet spraying. It's frame spraying across multiple links or multiple paths, not just links. So this is much beyond MLAG and LACP and yeah. getting way beyond what STP was ever intended to do. This is, yeah. and in, in many ways, this is a replacement. UEC could become a replacement for STP, MLAG, LACP and all that type of stuff to say, we don't, we just want to find all possible paths and then spray the frames across all possible destinations without letting them get out of order. And right while detecting congestions in the paths and saying, well, if I'm going to spray onto this path and it's congested, I want to unspray, you know, or Mm -hmm. stop spraying onto that pathway and then get around it. And so it really is this idea of a guaranteed network at a a small scale. So compared to the global internet, this is a small scale. We're talking, uh, you know, 100,000 nodes, maybe a million nodes, which is nothing compared to what the internet's like. But I can build an absolutely reliable network which takes advantage of all the bandwidth all the asset capabilities, all the devices, and it's going to have a software control loop. As I understand it, you're talking about probably building some sort of controller talking down to the ASICs that actually manages the packet spraying, manages the congestion and so forth. Well, the controlling the controlling situation is um, also uh, up for up for grabs too in, in a lot of ways, right? So, so there's many, many different ways to skin this cat. 
And um, what we're looking to try to do is find out the best possible solution for the network profiles we're looking at. So generally speaking, your your point about the internet or even, even WAN networks is that there's so many variables that you have to control. It becomes very difficult to plan for those variables when almost everything winds up being an exception at this level. Hmm. So we're focusing specifically on the workload solutions and what's needed for the workload solutions for that kind of a network, which is usually a back-end network. And then beyond that, we're looking to try to focus the kind of controlling capabilities, mm. um, you know, all the way up the stack uh, in, in that regard. So we're not trying to swallow the ocean. That's That would be our front end network and hmm. the kind of stuff that goes over the internet. But we do anticipate that the kind of work that we're doing could have apl- applications inside of data center environments too, but that's not our focus right now. We're focusing right. specifically on catering to the workloads. Okay. Which, is our, which are AI and HPC. Correct. So some of the things I've been reading about uh, and learning about uh, UEC, I'm hearing terms around, you know, signaling systems and mechanisms to for systems to, you know, sort of take turns using bandwidth and so on, or carving up uh, frames into um, the standard sizes. And I'm thinking, well, that sort of sounds like things I've heard around ATM or, or token ring. So is this going to be Ethernet uh, going forward or something else? That is not a discussion we've entertained at the moment. We have been talking about different packet formats and what the implications would be for that, but we haven't really decided anything in any definitive sense. Ultimately, you know, the, the fixed packet sizes that you're discussing, you know, are we, you know, come very close to things like flits and that sort of approach that you might find in CXL. But, but the question is, do something like does something like that scale to the kind of environment we're looking at? Um, you know, at building. Uh, And right now, the the answer hasn't yet been determined. Mm. So at at the moment, everything is on the table. Um, We we are deliberately not avoiding the conversation, but we are not saying definitively to start off with it. This is the one that's going to be you know the, the one packet to rule them all. It's an excellent question and one that is under under topic and consideration at the moment, but hasn't yet been determined. But at the foundation, it's still going to be Ethernet. Yeah, the foundation is still going to be Ethernet. So perhaps, Jay, you can come back in the future once the UEC moves down the path and we get some more concrete stuff. Come back and talk to us about what's happening in that space and let us know what the shape of things comes as they come along. I would love to. There's a lot of stuff that is going on right now that has some absolutely cool implications that we can't talk about yet. But I do want to come back and talk about them when they're ready. So as we talked about, there's becoming clearer that InfiniBand will be the AI networking product for the next few years, maybe one, two, maybe three, but in the longer term, some abstracted protocol that we will call AI Ethernet will come along to replace it in the same way that data center fabrics are made out of EVPN overlays. They're not just data center Ethernet anymore. I think we'll see some sort of AI network like that. Um, And over time, we'll see them, you know, embed features in the network related to packet spraying and, and congestion management and software monitoring, software controlled. But the question of whether the DPUs will beat that in the long run is still, I, I'd still still bet my 10 bucks on that, Drew. DPUs right, will we'll ultimately put that control it. Yeah, yeah, we'll put that in the spreadsheet. All right. <laughs> okay, reports recently emerged that scientists have created a superconductor that operated at room temperature. Those results have so far not been replicated in other labs or research institutions, but it has reignited interest in superconductors. Oh, you know, there's nothing like a scientist to have... <laughs> A bitch slap first uh, when some research <laughs> yes. comes up, but I mean it's been enormous, uh, and I didn't I didn't sort of get involved in it in the early days because 
it took me a little while to twig to just how important the superconductors could potentially be. So in the current silicon chips that we have around today, there are substantial power losses as electrons move through the physical medium. And in, in concept, it actually pushes back, it resists it. And so that means we have to apply sufficient voltage or pressure for the electrons to move. And then when they move, they become current electro- and then they shed heat uh, because the, the resistance is coming back. S- superconductors take away the heat, take away the pressure. So all of a sudden, we could be making chips that need very little voltage to operate, and therefore they could become you know, much less... You could have many more chips for the same amount of power consumed, but they also then don't have to invest cooling energy, so no more energy yep. put into cooling of the chips. Yep. So if we can find a material that passes electrons with zero resistance, then computer power consumption drops radically. Probably not nil, just radically, right? Radically, and this yep. whole idea of a data center you know, that, that has half the energy goes to cooling and half the energy goes to heating up a data center. Oh, we call that, you know, smart rocks where we turn them into the CPUs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other part here is, of course, um, quantum computers because quantum computing uses superconductors. And today, the only way we can make them operate is to super cool them down to something very, very cold. And then we have to apply massive amounts of pressure. So what the secret that we're looking for here is a room temperature superconductor that also operates at ambient pressure. So anywhere up to like you know where humans live we don't want to have to provide super uh, weird cooling you know liquid helium cooled and we don't right. also or, have to want to put them under massive pressure so yeah yep. if we can put that together everything changes medical imaging electrical motors ASICs like cables in the walls if you can get room temperature superconductors that you can produce in sufficient volume then all of a sudden the, you know a lot of things change so um, right now, all of the existing known operate at low temperatures and very high pressures, and a researcher has claimed to have identified a room temperature semiconductor named LK99. They published some research. It was preprint. It went to Archive, uh, a website called Archive or Archive, Archive. And, but the research was never proven or validated or checked, right? And then various other researchers have stacked on top of it, claiming that they've been able to replicate it. And then when they published their research, it turned out that these people were fantasists or non-exaggerous. You know, they would exaggerate or they would falsify their results so that they could get some sort of fame out of it. And so now we have a situation where we've got the, the researchers coming out, the theory of the science is coming out saying, yes, it's possible. We think it might work if we have various mathematical calculations based on these models. A couple of places have said that they can replicate the production of LK99, but no one else. But the results or the proof that they give has been a bit thin. So it's all a bit weird, Drew. Yeah, I think my reading was uh, some a university lab has replicated using LK99 as a superconductor material, but they weren't able to do it at room temperature. I think they had to do you do it in a particularly cold temperature, but they did say, yes, this material does seem suitable for superconducting, not at room temperature. And there are, I guess there are other universities working on replicating other aspects uh, of this results. Yeah, I should note that uh, in academia, you can preprint a paper, which means you're just putting it out there. It hasn't gone through peer review. It hasn't been published in an official journal. Uh, and so this preprint obviously caught a lot of attention and now people are rushing to see if they can replicate these results. Uh, and as you mentioned, if we could actually get, you know, room temperature and standard pressure superconducting, it would change everything. But <laughs> pretty much it would actually have actually significant possible. 
The impact on the environment, like the amount, if we could save energy from just computing right. generally. On computing, on transportation, on medical yes. imaging, on all kinds of things. And again, yes, the, and the, the knock-on effects in terms of the environmental impact would be amazing. Yeah. So yeah. if this is real, woof, mm. yes. <laughs> that's what, yes, that's why there's so much hype. And quantum right. computers suddenly become possible at, you know, without the weird stuff that, you know, the, the, the weird <laughs> pictures that you see from Google with like, you know, 80 yes. cubits and it's this room full of physical weird strange and equipment and and people who obviously don't get outside enough um but the the challenge here will be i think the mystery will continue until someone can with enough credibility and enough seriousness can produce the results with an unquestioned level of authority and proof uh-huh. and right. until then you're going to see people there's there's a spectrum of scientists saying absolutely not this is bunk and then you've got a bunch of people on the other side who can't wait to get some recognition and notoriety by declaring that they can replicate the results rightly or and mostly wrongly um, and then a lot of people in the middle going eh, I don't know we need to wait a bit and it's it's this thing where science takes time it doesn't happen it does. on social yep. media you know so <laughs> <laughs> but the excitement is palpable we've got four links in here about the, about the sort of thing so if you're interested in following this but you know if this this is possibly, I think we've seen a few false starts around room temperature semiconductors, but if this is genuine and this seems to be, this seems to sort of like the bell curve is skewed toward this might be possible today as at the 4th of August, who knows by Monday, uh, hugely exciting for society and for the globe, particularly as from environmental concerns. Yep. So let's hope it's, it's actually something that can happen, but uh, we have to wait and see. All right, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation. We're talking about digital experience monitoring with Fortinet. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we get into digital experience monitoring, or DEM. Now, DEM goes beyond the traditional SLAs by offering much more precise measurements of network performance and application performance that's actually experienced by the end users. And these detailed measurements actually help the network engineers identify and respond to problems. Now, we're talking today with sponsor Fortinet about how it delivers digital experience monitoring. Our guests today are Kimberly Bejon, Director of Products, and Alex Samonte who is a field CTO. They are 40 people here from Fortinet. Let's dive into the business at hand by starting with a very quick summary of digital experience monitoring and what scenario we're hearing most about. Really, what's the value and what's DM about? It's really our world has turned hybrid and it's hybrid all the way around. So applications and services that we access to do our jobs are not always on that infrastructure we own and manage anymore. And let's not even mention how SaaS apps are really core to our day-to-day lives. Yeah. So once in a while, they used to be like shadow IT. Now it's, they run the business in a lot of cases. So I like to talk about this as like in traditional networking, we always cared about the underlay, the physical network, but now we all use the internet and that's a variable. There's no guarantees on the internet. It could be good. It's usually good, but sometimes it's bad. But then we also use overlays everywhere. So we actually have this complexity overlaid on uncertainty. And I think many people struggle to understand how do we know what's going on? Is that where DEM can sort of step in? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're talking about blind spots, really. What you just kind of boiled some of this down to is when you don't own that infrastructure anymore, there's a lot of blind spots. And now you've got the applications are a different place. You're using the internet because the employees are coming in. They're hybrid as well. So, you know, I don't know how your listeners feel about being hybrid, but, you know, they have to now manage all these people and get them that nice, clean experience because an employee wants to be able to log in to get their job done. And no matter where they're at, it has to feel and look the same. I don't care so much about the user. Mainly what I'm concerned about is mean time to innocence. You know, when the user rings up, gets on the help desk and raises a case and says, the internet's slow and it's your fault. I want to be able to say it's not the network, right? That's what I'm looking for. And DEM, I think, is part of that. DEM is a much more comprehensive way of looking at that tools because it doesn't only work for hybrid off-prem. It also works for on-prem. Are you starting to see one of the things I've talked about a lot is we're starting to see the campus networks and the branch networks just become internet sharing. Is that something you're seeing as well? Oh, well, certainly. I mean, you certainly know within Fortinet, you're very familiar with our product suites. You know, SD-WAN is, is a strong component of our fabric. So, yes, we do see a lot of that. And I, I want to talk a little bit where you just said mean time to innocence. You know, I think a lot of times, you know, when we have these traditional network performance monitoring tools, mean time to innocence meant like, okay, it's not my problem, go away or throw it over to the app teams or whatever, right? DEM really helps teams come together because it's really gaining that visibility into these blind spots and helping you collaborate a lot more with your DevOps teams and your IT teams. And, you know, I think you like to use a term called silo busters or something like that. I think I've heard you say that once before. Well, it's sort of, you know, leaning back into the days of there was campus networking professionals and then there was WAN professionals and there was data center professionals and service provider. And what we're seeing is those are merging more and more together. Absolutely. So I think let's transition into talking about how Fortinet thinks about DEM. So how do you actually deliver this product to customers? Because there's different ways. Like DEM is not one thing. It's like many things these days. There are different approaches, different vendors come at it from a different point of view. So let's dive into how you put it together for clients. Really, when you're looking at any type of DEM solutions, you need to think about vantage points, right? How am I gaining this different visibility and different aspects so I get the full picture? Because if you only look at things from one angle, you're not getting the full picture of things. So in the term, you'll hear a lot of different DEM vendors, and I'll talk about vantage points. So let's talk about this. SD-WAN is certainly one of our vantage points. You talked about the campus and the branches, mm-hmm. right? So in SD-WAN, you got that vantage points where, you know, SD-WAN is looking at layer two and making some great decisions on switching lines and applications steering and following QS. And they're using layer two and layer three to, to have that conversation. What DEM brings into it is layer seven. You're doing that synthetics across those links now, and you're getting a better feel in ways of how application performance can help augment some of that changing and switching back and forth. So that's certainly one. It's it's, it's a big one. I mean, you're on campus, as you were talking about. So you're talking a little there about agent-driven. So there's this idea that we can do performance monitoring by, you know, sucking up flow records or doing packet captures or, you know, at the edge on the appliance. But what we're doing here is we're actually putting synthetic agents onto the edge devices in the in the network, SD-WAN devices, firewalls, literally in this case, Fortinet firewalls, and the agent goes and runs a transaction. And that adds to the other data. It doesn't replace it. it it's complementary to the other network performance data. Exactly. So like I said, you're, you're getting good data already it is, is you're kind of augmenting a little bit more of that data from that network infrastructure that you're running for SD-WAN. 
That's one of those vantage points. There's global hops of presence. So this means we have pops like all over the world that you can now say, hey, test accessing these different things, right? It could be SaaS applications, it could be your applications. It could be simple things, even like web pages and different services and marketplaces, whatever that is, you want to make sure everywhere around the world is kind of getting that same. And you may not need that from all applications, but some you do, right? So what you're actually doing there is monitoring the internet. In effect. Yes, in effect. Or monitoring key locations. And that data is then available to me via the 40 manager. We'll talk more about 40 manager in a minute, but you've got pops all over the world doing various things and you've got agents there gathering data about, you know, is Azure up? Is Microsoft Office working? Is, you know, Google Docs working? That sort of stuff. Yeah, all your video conferences, all those good things that we just so have to have so much in our life these days, right? Well, everybody does the same thing, right? So you can monitor those because everybody's using the same Zoom, Teams, you know, whatever, right? Exactly. And you can get that full spectrum of like, okay, you use Teams, for example, that's starting to have some issues down in Florida. So that access point in some of the regions in Florida, if you're a big global company, but my Minnesota area is perfectly fine. So let them continue on that way. But I'm going to kind of alert the teams down in Florida. Hey, maybe switch over to pick another video conference because we we all know we have more than one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never ends, right? (laughs) Right. So that's one of the other ones. But what about data center? Because you can't not do the data center. You really have to monitor there as well. You're not traditionally a data center company, but have you got something? We are a data center company. I challenge you on that. We've got firewalls that have an extremely portfolio that extensively into all firewall deployments from cloud and on-premise. I know you're thinking more branch and campus, but we have a wide portfolio in the data center. But in the DEM space, yes, we have collectors that go in there. So if you have our firewalls in the data center, there's some collections. We also have points of presence, virtual machines that you can pop in in different, if there's segments and all that you want to do various collections, you've got that. So that's a bit of a third, right? And then there's a very endpoint agent, right? So this is that employee's laptop, desktop, put an agent on there. So now you're seeing when, you know, Joe goes to the coffee house to do his work or works from home, wherever it is, Mm -hmm. you're able to get more of his visibility as well. Because yes, sometimes the coffee house Wi-Fi isn't that great, but he thinks it's your problem and it's not (laughs) your problem. Yeah, well, welcome to 2023. It's a new set of challenges. Now, the question is, I've got all this data. We've sort of established the baseline that DEM is out there synthetically testing transactions. We've got many different ways to collect data points across the network. How do we make that actionable? How do we turn that into pay rises? All DEM solutions really need to be able to correlate all this various telemetry that you just collected and make sense of it in some way, right? So you take all those vantage points and you help paint the picture um, to start to see where performance problems are bubbling up. You don't want to really be using this thing in more of a reactive state. You want to start moving more into a proactive state. So you want to get to these problems as they, before they start to really bubble up and impact the users. So what's really unique about 40 Monitor within our product suite is we don't only just correlate those metrics that you need, but we also use a lot of automation to run diagnostic commands before we open even up the tickets for you, right? So we're starting to see you've got some parameters and thresholds getting hit, right? We'll go out and issue commands. So for example, you know, take any one of your scenarios of a, let's go back to a video conferencing situation. Your employees at the branch, a video conference is starting to get a little wonky or you're starting to see some problems there. You get a call in or get an alert. What are some of the commands you might start thinking about doing to start diagnostic in this problem? 
what type of things would you do, right? Like a lot of people go lean right on to, let me run some trace routes, right? Net stats, maybe some top commands. Well, you've got performance monitoring in 40 Manager as well. So you'd be instantly able to say, is it the local loop? Is it something in the backbone? Is it Teams? Because you're also synthetically testing Teams. So you would say, hang on, I know that Teams is fine everywhere but this location. Oh, hang on, this person's in this location. You could correlate that data and, and push that up in, as part of 40 Manager alerting. It does. And it paints somewhat of a good picture when you correlate that data together. But those commands and that output of that command is another level of augmenting that picture. And then on top of augmenting that picture, you've got that synthetics tracing information. Now, what we do is we collect that synthetics output that you've got from those vantage points. We take some commands that you would automate and do. We would do it for you when we're opening up the ticket. And then we take those key metrics and shape them up for you. And this all becomes one ticket. So now everybody's focused on just the key stuff, right? There's a lot of noise in a lot of areas. Yeah. This helps get everybody into focus going, oh, okay, I can eliminate the whole SaaS app being down. Or I can eliminate it's some user problem, one specific user type problems. It's hitting a certain region. Let's go back to that Florida ISP, right? You can then start quickly going down to, oh, the service provider in Florida is uh, having some performance issues there. Yeah. So that's really about turning digital experience monitoring into something that's actionable. It's not just sitting there waiting for you to go and click a button and show you some charts about application. It's actually proactively coming up and saying, hey, we're seeing problems happening here. Absolutely. You're getting more to where we kind of made the storyline of it's not just an up-down SLA kind of thing. You're moving into experience monitoring now. So this is XLAs. You're doing that experience and really setting some stages where you can up-level everything so that employees get that same look and feel no matter where they connect from. So how do you distinguish between an SLA and uh, an experience? Yeah, so that's interesting. Now, just also know that I'm not making up some little fancy fun terms of XLAs, <laughs> right? This is this is something out there, I, I promise you. I always figure when some when a marketing person talks about experience, I start to think like perfume. It's like a <laughs> scent. It's like a feeling. <laughs> the notes of cherry this, and tobacco mixed together. <laughs> Did I put on my marketing hat? Well? <laughs> yeah, keep going. <laughs> so what well, we're talking about XLAs, like I said, this is really an industry term. And what's really interesting too is uh, service providers themselves are adopting DEM because the people who use for managed services really want to see more than just up down. They the customers are demanding more of an experience level. So a lot of your service providers already adopting DEM. They're infiltrating into this network so that they're making sure that they're not just up down, they're hitting that performance issue and getting in front of things a lot further. So it's not me. <laughs> it is an industry thing. Um, and they yeah, are leveraging yeah. great tools like ours to do it. Um, but how do you get started with it is probably a maybe a bigger question. So one thing we see a lot of our customers doing is like, you can use SLAs as like a baseline of where your metrics would be. Drill down from that a bit more and set that as your performance level of thresholds to understand. And don't try to bull the ocean, right? Really start focusing on what is critical to the business, right? Is there a certain application that everybody has to access and want to make sure everything's ahead? Or here's another great one is, you know, there's a certain regional area, we all have them. There's a regional area that always have some kind of strange anomaly problems that you're getting called on and pinged on all the time. Mm. You can use these kind of tools to get a little bit better visibility. And I think what you're alluding to here, and I'm going to come back to this idea of, you know, experience level assurance is much more of a perfume than a real thing. But what you're trying to get at here is you're wrapping up troubleshooting tools, but you're also getting to serviceability tools. So you're actually yes. saying, mm -hmm. look, 
you need to know what the business impact is. And you used to be the interpreter for that. You would go out and run pings and trace routes and look at charts and then put your finger in the air and throw salt over your shoulder and then, you know, whatever, that sort of stuff. But what we're now saying is the business says there seems to be a problem with teams somewhere and you can go, oh, yes, that's in this location. Telco's having problems and we also know that Microsoft's having problems, but I know what it is. It's something else entirely, right? It's really about getting that final step across the bridge from troubleshooting. Yes, something's half broken, which is a key fact about mean time to innocence, right? And saying this is the actual impact of the business without you necessarily having to know five years experience of knowing what the business does. Exactly. And it brings you more to the table of what, what drives the business. So, Alex, I want to bring you in here at the death here because I give you a chance to talk about the security fabric because really I think the key here is that this is actually all part of your portfolio. It's not a separate thing. The Fortinet has this whole width and capability. Right. We're always looking for ways that we can enhance the security fabric. And really what that means is all of our products work together and share security information. So in this case, we want to make sure that customers can gain the benefits of 40 Monitor's insights across all all of those products. So the analytics that we have already in Forta Manager, Forta Analyzer, and Forta Sim are enriched by the data that Forta Monitor provides because of those different unique vantage points. So the Forta Monitor then provides additional visibility and functionality into things like our secure SD-WAN. We can now make better path choices about which WAN links to use based on the information that 40 Monitor has provided. So if you have redundant telcos and redundant internet providers and Teams isn't working over this one, but it is over this one, then use that one, but let the rest of the traffic go down that one. Correct. An easy example of that is, yeah, some ISP is just fully not working or even even regionally. I mean, let's, let's go back and pick on Florida for a bit. You know, regionally, Florida is having some problems. Maybe both of my ISPs are down and I need to fail back over to MPLS to transit my data across my own network just to get around the issues that Florida mm, have. Mm. SD-WAN, that's its, its job to do that. But from those additional vantage points, Florida Monitor can bring insight into where SD-WAN is making those choices. In that scenario, Dem could actually tell you the hit to the user experience. They're no longer going direct to the internet. They're going via a long way around in the case that you gave. You could actually start to say, yes, the network's going to be degraded by 50% because of this. We're working to fix it. And the uniqueness of the individual agent where we can have that end-to-end transaction directly from the you know user's own PC gives us even more insight into that. We'll switch the blame from Florida. Many times, it may be even something like the user's own laptop itself. Maybe there's some problem, you know, PowerPoint's using up too much CPU, and that's what's actually changing the experience. But again, SD-WAN can try and make the best use of the WAN path in those cases because of 40 monitors monitoring. Well, that's about all the time that we've got available today. Thanks very much to Kimberly Bejan and Alex Samonte for joining us today to talk a little bit about DEM. You can find more information at 40net.com slash DEM, that's slash D-E-M at the 40net.com website. And thanks very much to 40net for sponsoring today's show. And because of them, we're actually able to keep bringing you fine free analysis and content like this. As always, you can find many more podcasts on our network over at packetpushes.net. You can follow us on Twitter. And if you're on Spotify or some podcast app and they collect you do a rating it's super super helpful if you say give us a really good rating thumbs up five stars whatever it is because last and never ever least remember the too much networking would never be enough